welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a prescriptive conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Let's talk prescriptions. And as an emergency physician, I write for a lot of prescriptions. Back in the old days, I would go through a prescription pad every few weeks. And now, although we moved to electronic prescribing, the emergency department is still flying with prescriptions. Most patients leave the emergency department or a doctor's office with something. This gives new meaning to the United States as a superpower. We are a drug superpower. We consume a high number of illicit drugs and a whole lot of prescription drugs. According to Statista, the retail drug industry filled more than 4.7 billion prescriptions in 2022. That's billions with a B. Pharmacies and drugstores are sitting pretty with a revenue of $257 billion in 2014. CVS Health made $60.8 billion back in 2016, and profits continue to grow. CVS Health is also a pharmacy benefits management group that denied my husband's life-saving cholesterol medication after suffering a heart attack and a stroke at a relatively young age. The medication he was denied is covered for Medicaid patients, but not for my husband. But that's another story. With all these prescriptions flowing into the country, some are certainly saving lives, but how many are costing lives? And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Love. It was great to see and work with you yesterday. It was also interesting talking about drug issues and how policy can affect our patients and really all of us. As you know, drug and medication use and sometimes misuse comes up daily for us in the ER. For everyone else, hello, my name is Dr. Kimberly Allen. I'm an emergency medicine physician and second year resident. We write many prescriptions every day. My question is, how often are prescribed medications misused and what type of data is there examining this? Also, are there downsides to over-testing for substances? And have we even started to curve or put it into the opioid crisis? Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Allen, for your question and for your great care of taking care of patients in the emergency department. To answer your question, I invited a physician who is familiar with large data on drug test analysis, Dr. Jeff Gooden. Dr. Gooden is Senior Medical Advisor to Quest Diagnostics and co-author of the recent Health Trend Report by Quest. He is board certified in, in pain medicine, anesthesia, addiction medicine, hospice palliative care, and is a medical acupuncturist. 
To learn more about Dr. Jeff Gooden, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Gooden, welcome to High Truths. Thanks, Renee. Thanks for having me. So you have a very interesting background, anesthesia, hospice, palliative care, addiction, pain medicine, acupuncture. How did you get to all that? And what's your favorite? Oh, boy, it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. So I thought I was headed for orthopedics uh, in medical school, uh, spent a little time with the new specialty back 25, 30 years ago, pain management. Nobody really heard of it. Even today, some people don't know what pain management is. Uh, and kind of knew that was my calling to, to help people. So I uh, got into the world of pain very early on, trained at Yale, very interested in research and publishing and, and academia. Yeah. Uh, recognized early on this kind of um, interface between pain and substance abuse, because one of the major classes of treatment for refractory pain or patients who keep suffering are opioid analgesics, what some people might refer to as narcotic-based. We don't like that term very much in medicine. Um, so I did a training in addiction medicine as well. When I got to my ultimate uh, uh, kind of stable practice for the better part of 20 years was a hot, uh, northern New Jersey uh, hospital-based system that I was finding myself doing a lot of cancer, pain, and end-of-life care, and they had no palliative care physicians. So I got trained in palliative care as well. And I thought, you know, in light of everything we do to patients, wouldn't it be great if I knew how to do acupuncture to try to help minimize their medication use? So there's the long story short to how I got to all those titles. Wow. So you you just really like medical education. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've been a student forever, for sure. I'm still every day. Uh, we all are, and we should be. Um, and so tell us, you are advisor for Quest Diagnostics, a lab firm. That's kind of how I reached you. I, I read some of their reports. I thought, wow, I really want to reach out. Tell us about Quest. Sure. So Quest is one of the larger laboratories in uh, in this country. They're one of the largest drug testing sources in this country. And, and most people don't know a lot about drug testing. Sometimes you need it for employment. Uh, sometimes you need it if you're going to drive a public vehicle or, you know, sort of in the transportation industry. But we use drug testing in the pain and substance use disorder world to make sure that patients are taking the medicines they're supposed to or not taking drugs that they're not supposed to. So uh, it's very common to do drug testing in, in, in uh, those two areas of medicine, behavioral and mental health for substance use disorders, and particularly in pain management when patients need controlled substances. The things that some people, like I say, might call narcotics, but, but really are in the class of opioid analgesics. That's great. So they see lots of lab data. I think people know they can get their uh, lab drawn or get their, their results with Quest, a fairly um, big name in the United States. Yeah. And, you know, Roni, being an academician, one of the things about Quest being so big is that we can do research projects. So Quest, you know, puts a lot of money towards advocacy and research and, and, and publishing and medical education. And they have millions and millions and millions of samples that have been sent to them over the past decade that we tell the data scientists, hey, I want you to tell me how many patients were positive five years ago for marijuana compared to this year. What was the fentanyl positivity rate? How many people positive for fentanyl were also positive for methamphetamine? So we do a lot of really neat research and, and think about who better to have their finger on the pulse of drug use around the country than a lab that does drug testing. We have real-time data to which pockets of the country are seeing methamphetamine abuse, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, even novel psychoactive substances that you know people might take to try to evade drug testing, horse tranquilizers. And you, you, if you can imagine if they're mind-altering, people will take them. 
Are you, you mentioned, since you mentioned horse tranquilizer, are you testing for xylazine? Because that's not our routine test in drug screens. That's correct. It's not a routine test. As a matter of fact, when you talk to most of the addiction experts, they will tell you that it's so prevalent that you probably don't even need to test for it. That if there's fentanyl in your sample, there's probably xylazine in your sample. There are two labs and soon to be Quest who can test for, for xylazine. But again, uh, it doesn't make much of a difference if somebody's positive for fentanyl or heroin, we treat them with the same kind of care pathway as we would somebody positive for xylazine. But it doesn't make it any safer. It makes the drugs actually more dangerous. Right. And, and, and that's true. There's only, uh, you know, a couple handful of drugs that we really test for in an emergency department or a hospital setting. Uh, you at Quest have, you know, a larger array of that. Um, and I could tell you that in San Diego, we look at that very carefully every month that I meet with the medical examiner and sheriff, um, and we have not had xylazine yet, but then we're not testing all the time. So we're actually going to do a four month period where every single person who dies and gets a drug screen, they'll be tested for xylazine. So we're going to find out if how big a problem that is. Since you mentioned it, I wasn't even going to talk about that. No, but we need to bring up a very important, you know, very important point that once the street recognizes that we're looking for xylazine, they'll find some other drug. And let me tell you, the chemists, not only in this country, but in China and Mexico and South America are brilliant. They change a couple of nitrogen uh, you know, molecules, they change a few carbon atoms and they have a new substance we've never seen before. Let's say they take a Valium-like drug as a, as a core structure. They change it around a little bit, make it stronger and longer acting. And uh, and then all of a sudden, here's another drug that we've never been able to test for. People start dying from it. It's going to be years before we recognize it. So a very tough, you know, tough to be behind the eight ball there. They are very smart and clever. They and they just throw out all sorts of different chemicals. And uh, sadly, our population are human guinea pigs to the consequences of uh, of this. And oftentimes it's our kids, right? I mean, we've all yeah. seen in the news that they're taking fentanyl tablets and making them colored rainbow fentanyl pills are called. And, you know, kids see a rainbow colored pill, even though it's tiny, it, it's lethal and, and it's unfortunate. So Dr. Kill Allen is an emergency medicine resident, uh, amazing doctor who I work with. Funny enough, the day she recorded a question for our podcast, she went to get a drug screen for her employment physical. But her question um, to you is, how often are prescription drugs misused and what data do we have to share about that? Yeah, so let me share with you a couple of statistics. If you think about the landscape we were in about 10 years ago, we had 40,000 drug-related deaths in this country per year. Fast forward to last year or 2021, we were over 100,000. So as much as we recognize this drug crisis, it's not getting better. We're doing something wrong, right? The, the, the overdose deaths are, are only increasing. When you look at what proportion of that is actually prescription drugs, it's a small portion. It's maybe 10 to 20%. It's not zero. So doctors can't kind of, you know, let their guard down. We've become very good at being skeptical about who gets these medicines, screening them a bit better, doing drug screens, checking the statewide prescription drug databases for who's getting the medicines, where are they getting them, how are they paying, et cetera. You know, we have all this data available to us now. But the minority of deaths in this country related to prescription, related to opioids are due to the prescription. So doctors are definitely doing a better job. And if you ask me how they're doing that better job, they basically turned off the faucet. They stopped prescribing pain medicine. So that's, that's the exact it, analogy I use, turn off the faucet. They turn off the faucet. <laughs> so now there's millions of patients out there who can't get the medicines that 
maybe they needed and maybe they didn't. So let's say there's a subset of patients that really did need these medicines. They can't get them now and they're suffering. So there has to be a happy middle ground with recognizing the dangers of misuse, figuring out how do we mitigate those risks, but yet give the people who really need their medicine, their medicine. Got it. And so, you know, that was the next question Dr. Allen had was, have we made a dent in the opioid prescription um, opioid crisis? And, uh, you know, that's really how I got involved in the issue of addiction medicine. I, like you, um, uh, became an addiction physician, but I, I started out uh, with emergency medicine. And uh, I think we no longer have a prescription opioid problem. We still have an opioid crisis. What do you think? Yeah, I'm in your camp also. Look, misusers will take anything they can. So you're going to find, and and I review cases all the time, where they have, let's say, MS content, a morphine prescription drug in their system, but also heroin and methamphetamine and some illicit drug, right? Misusers are going to take anything they can get their hands on. So there's still, like I said, 10 to 20% of the deaths are related to, I forgot how they word it, but have a prescription drug in their system but that could very well be along with illicit drugs like heroin and and fentanyl. So yeah, we're doing a better job for sure. The scary thing is, I'll tell you, is that when you look at, so you talked about Quest Diagnostics collecting data. We put out a report every year called Health Trends in Drug Monitoring. For the last 10 years, we've mined our data and put out, you know, uh, 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 publicly available data to which drugs are being abused and what is what, you know, ge- geographically, where does it happen and who's at risk and male versus female and what age population. And basically it affects all ages, all sexes, right? Younger patients are more predisposed to drug misuse. You typically experiment more when you're younger. By the time you're 40, 50, 60, 70, you either know if you're a misuser or not. You're not, being, not becoming a, a new misuser usually at that age. But what we found with the, the Quest Health Trends is pretty interesting. 50% of the samples sent to Quest. Now, remember I said before, we've analyzed millions and millions of samples. So this to me is astounding. As a prescriber, 50% of the samples sent to Quest either don't have the drug in it that the doctor's looking for or have extra drugs in there that, that don't belong there. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's insane, right? Now, let's say you weren't doing drug testing in your practice. Hey, I... I know my patient, I know if they're misusing or not. No, you don't, not when the numbers are that high. Hey, well, I checked the database to see where they're getting their prescriptions. Yeah, but you don't know they're taking their wife's prescriptions, they're buying pills on the street or, you know, the only objective measure we have of knowing what a patient consumes is with drug testing. And it's not even still an exact science and the window of detection, you know, the most common matrix or the most common body fluid we use is urine. We only get two or three days out of most drugs. So if you behave 27 days a month before you come see me, I'm not going to detect your aberrant drug use. And that leads to a whole other discussion is, are we getting better with hair testing, which you can go back 30, 60, 90 days? The answer is yes, not there yet. Can we do saliva testing? Yes, but it doesn't give us the same window of detection. So, you know, we do what we can. It's the best that we have. But if you are writing prescriptions, the new CDC guidelines that were revised from 2016 out to 2022, recommendation number 10, doctors should consider drug testing their patients if they're prescribing uh, controlled substances, because we know that's how we detect aberrancy. Right. And, and I think that that's important because then you have an opportunity by making that diagnosis of an aberrancy, you have an opportunity to educate and maybe and save someone. Absolutely. If you think about the current model in this country, 
for treating addiction, it's broken. You know, as an ER doc, they come into the ER, they've overdosed already. So now they already have the disease. Let's go back and try to reverse it. We know it's not a reversible, reversible process. We need early intervention. I know there are laws against it and people are going to squawk. We need to test school-age kids. Who's, when do they start using drugs? High school. You know, there was a survey out. Almost 1% of high school kids have taken Vicodin or Percocet. One in 100 kids have taken, illicitly, not for, you know, an ACL repair or something, right? It's it's amazing. Well, I'll just really I'll just open. differ with you on one thing. For people who have a serious substance use disorder, there's hope for them to get treatment and get Absolute, better. It's, no, it's, no it's not a lost cause. Yeah. It's not oh, irreversible. No, no, no. I, I didn't yeah. mean to recommend that it's a lost cause. I I meant to say that early intervention is usually better than late intervention. Absolutely, absolutely. I am right. Right. And, and, and I see that with all disease processes, right? Absolutely. I mean, we have that with addiction. Do I want to treat someone who is end-stage substance use disorder, heavy intravenous uh, user, or do I want to catch that early? I want to catch yeah. it early, and I want to and prevent we, it. And the same with a heart attack. Do I want to treat some guy who is having, you know, CPR at a heart attack or or just can make the cath lab? Or would I do I want to treat people's cholesterol and high blood pressure and diabetes on the front end so don't, they don't get that problem? Absolutely. It's a disease state like any other. And if you think about it, what's underlying their drug use? It could be pain. Hey, let's treat their pain. It could be mental health disorder. Hey, let's treat their anxiety and depression, which, you know, these dual diagnoses, you know, are the start often of substance misuse. If we can get to them early, if we can detect early drug use rather than late, I just think it'd be a lot easier to treat. So Jeff, is there a downside to drug testing? That's another question that Dr. Allen has. So for example, I saw that there's legislation in California saying, let's stop testing pregnant women. I, I think that that's wrong. That I think the attention is to prevent stigma and maybe women losing their custody of their babies, but then you're missing an opportunity to treat the mom and the baby. So uh, I won't tell you which state, but we recently spoke to the uh, somebody high up in the government who works on addiction treatment, who said, you know, there's so much stigma around drug testing. We think we're just going to move to a let's trust our patients kind of standpoint. We don't need to drug test them. And I said, look, it's amazing to hear that because we know that patients with substance use disorders will do anything to get drug. Lying is number one, right? Yeah. It's hard to believe almost anything that these patients tell you because they have one goal in mind, to get you to write a prescription or to, or to get illicit drug. Or to, so, to go upstream for that, to get the dopamine they need to stay alive. Absolutely. Alive. Right. Yeah. To, and look, I got to tell you, as an addictionologist, I've treated hundreds of people that tell me that their marijuana, their oxycodone is their, is their therapy, is their drug. It makes them normal. It makes them right. feel good. Right. So, so yeah, you look, I don't stigmatize these patients. And even the new CDC guidelines say, listen, Stigma in medicine is a huge issue, including pain, including around substance use disorder. If you're going to drug test one, you drug test all. Don't stereotype patients. Don't put them in buckets. Don't do it by race right. or color. Or cre like if you're going to test, have a, a protocol for your practice where you test everybody equally. Right. So interesting you talk about different states. I know uh, Colorado, certain Colorado hospitals have removed marijuana from their drug screen. One large hospital system in New York, and I won't say their name because they should be embarrassed, um, for medical students and residents, they were doing drug screens and the, the, the soon-to-be doctor employees were failing their drug screen. And what they decided to do instead of address a problem before it becomes worse is to stop the drug screen. Yeah. 
It's a, it's amazing what's gone out there with marijuana. It's so controversial. Uh, you know, there's a group of prescribers who feel like, hey, and even the former governor of the state of New Jersey said, look, if the opioid addicts smoke marijuana and use less opioid and therefore don't die as much, I'm all for letting them use marijuana. And a lot of the pain doctors think the same way. Hey, if my pain patients say it makes them better and they lower their dose of their opioid use, I'm okay with marijuana. Somebody like me, I'm a little bit more stringent. I say, you know. But the data doesn't show that. That's a misperception, right? The data shows that people who are using marijuana, again, their dopamine need is higher. So they use more opioids, not less. I'm totally with you, right? I'm an anesthesiologist, right? There's now a call to screen all patients for marijuana use before they undergo surgery. And even withhold surgery for two hours if you just use marijuana. So then the anesthetics would work for you. So that's just recent data that you're quoting, and that's absolutely right. And and look, I'm in uh, inner city Miami. Almost every patient on the younger side says that they smoke marijuana, right? So we're not canceling all the surgeries, but yes, you can't smoke marijuana. I just, I just, I just yeah. had. I can't help but intervene because I just did a, pos- a podcast about social norms, and the perceived social norm is that everybody's using marijuana. But if you actually really ask them, not it's that's not true. But there's yeah, a perception. No, yeah, it's just so it's so accessible. I was in New York City last summer, and and even though it's not legal, it's in every bodega. There are there are vans yeah. on the street selling marijuana. It's promoted. It's pushed. Yeah. 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 So look, it's a controversy. But I, I tell patients, look, if that's your drug, great. We're tapering off your opioids then. If you really want to be marijuana positive every single time that you come in for a visit, when I drug screen you then we're going to taper off the opioids and find a non-opioid way, including cannabinoids. And I'm all for it. Yeah. What do you mean by that, cannabinoids? Uh, Either CBD, one of the derivatives, or THC. If if marijuana is their drug and it makes them better, including their pain, I'd rather not keep them on any significantly high doses of, of opioid analgesics. Right. And are you seeing that actually work? Uh, so or is there, it's there, I think it numbs a different part of the body, not the pain. Yeah. It makes and, them maybe care less about the pain, but it doesn't treat the pain. And Rony, you and I have, been, have both been in medicine probably about the same number of decades. We know that there are responders and non-responders, right? Some patients yeah. respond beautifully to everything you do. Some patients don't respond to anything you do. Right. And there are marijuana responders and non-responders. So when patients ask me, should I try medical marijuana? I always say to them, well, have you ever tried marijuana before? And about half of them say, yes. I say, okay, when you smoke marijuana, how did it feel? They said, it felt great. I said, well, it's probably going to feel good. You're probably going to feel better when you do it. If they tell me they hated the feeling, I say, well, you're probably not going to appreciate the analgesic benefits or the sedative benefits from uh, So, So now that we got into this marijuana talk, and uh, do you also, if you're going to say that to patients, ask them and inform them about the risks as you would if you were prescribing opioids. You tell them about the drug interactions and making sure, you know, telling that it's not going to go well with your blood pressure medicines or with your opioids or with your depression medicines, or you could bleed to death um, yeah. if you're taking well, it with your Plavix. You're absolutely right. There are pharmacogenomic consequences. There are drug-drug interactions. There are anticoagulant issues for sure. Uh, pulmonary issues. Look, we still don't know the long-term effects of smoking marijuana. It could raise your risk of cancer fivefold. I mean, like we, we've done there. There have been CAT scan studies of lungs on marijuana users compared to CAT scans of tobacco users, and the marijuana user CAT scans look worse. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so I think I think in a decade from now, we're going to rethink this whole recreational marijuana thing is probably a bad idea. Again, it comes from a plant like many of our drugs do. If you have a mental health disorder, your anxiety is that bad and marijuana is your drug. God bless you should use it. But I just don't think it should be sold in the deli so that, it, you know, it has. It's I, I actually I don't think it should be called a medicine unless it's treated like a medicine, like an opioid or like a benzodiazepines or anything else with the risks and benefits and the contaminants and the poisons. Um, no question well, about it. It's a joke on our profession to call something a medicine when we had to go to medical school and residency and you particularly for a million years um, in order to practice medicine. And yet something just pops up and pre patients are treating themselves as what they call a medicine that we don't really treat as a medicine. Yeah, not just patients treating themselves, the college age uh, bud tender in the dispensary. Right, they're, they're acting like advice. the doctor, right. Yeah, yeah. who's giving that? Hey, you have nausea? Try this strain of uh, indica or sativa right. versus, you know. Versus so I really think we need to defend our profession as physicians and keep it pure to, um, to our science and not even recommend things. I mean, if people are using it, then, you know, I wouldn't, I, I'm not going to tell you, don't use it. I want you to understand the risks. And I would not recommend it based on those risks. Yeah. So I, t I totally agree with you. Getting back to the data that we collected, Quest, I'll tell you two more interesting, interesting tidbits. Benzodiazepine use, non-prescribed benzodiazepine use is a huge issue. Valium, Xanax, Ativan, drugs of the sort, even Ambien, right? Yes. So many people take these drugs and don't even think about them as drugs. It's, it's amazing. So when they come up positive on drug screen and we query them, they'll say, oh yeah, my brother gives me those pills or my wife gives, I take my wife's pills or something like that. We need to keep in mind that about a third of the deaths related to opioids are opioid benzo deaths. So it's yeah. not a drug that's without that's without problem. And the use of things like cocaine and amphetamine has been on a steep rise in the last few years. So again, we're going to get back to this whole issue. The drug crisis is not going away. If you're a clinician, the only way to know what your patient is consuming is by drug testing. Look, right. if you get a patient who's honest and tells you, great. But for the most part, that doesn't happen. Right. And, you know, I've talked to doctors who tell me they don't need a drug test in order to treat. And I'll say, you know, you're right. You don't need a drug test to go to treat. But that makes you, as for an ER doctor, that's fine. But if you want to connect with your patients afterward and do prevention and prevent that occurrence, that information, that data makes a world of difference to the patient. No question. It builds trust. Most patients don't see it that way. But if you tell your patient, listen, this is, it's a new era. This is part of my practice. Yeah. I'm not testing you. I'm testing everybody. And it's going to build trust. And as long as your drug tests come back compliant, we'll continue your treatment and we'll do our best. You know, fentanyl has really changed things for me because I'll say, do you want me to, they don't understand, they, they end up in the emergency room, something happened to them. I said, do you want me to find out and let you know if you were exposed to fentanyl? And, and people make urine like that and they want to know. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll tell you, I saw an article recently that, you know, we thought that, that these people were being exposed to fentanyl without their knowledge. It turns out that for many of the drug abusers, they seek out the heroin that has fentanyl. They try to go to the dealers where they know there's fentanyl there because they think they get more bang for the buck. So, you know, we were saying all That's a subset of population who have a serious substance use disorder. They have a substance use disorder. They have an opiate use disorder. So they're seeking fentanyl. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And 
Yeah. So I want to go back to the study because that's what I reached out um, when I saw Quest Diagnostic Health Trends Drug Misuse in America 2022. And the subtitle was A Decade Lost to the Drug Crisis. That's pretty impactful. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a fun thing to work on every year. I think we're up to 20 million de-identified drug tests that we have a database that we could mine from. Uh, we work with CDC, government officials, you know, literally to do surveillance about which drugs are popping up where in the country. And, and again, uh, almost a real-time database where we could tell you, you know, go back and look at last quarter, look at last year, let's compare last year to the year before. We can do a lot of things with our data. And, and, and we try to do that to educate clinicians on the streets who are, you know, dealing with these patients every day. Yeah. And, you know, the, the point of 50% of the drug screens that you obtained, uh, you show is misuse. Um, which is a crazy number, but it's much better than it was 10 years ago when it was 60%, right? So we're making, we're making, we're moving in the right direction. But can you explain what misuse means? What does that look like? And how do you tell that as a lab? Yeah. So what we do on, uh, on our requisitions on the, on the order form is have the clinician write down the medicines that the patient is supposed to be on. Mm-hmm. Now, could they leave one off and then it doesn't match? We actually call it med match. So we match the results of the urine test to the list of drugs the patient is supposed to be on. And when it comes back uh, without a match, we call that non-compliant or misuse. So if you have no drug in your system, but you're supposed to be on, you name it, a benzodiazepine, an opioid, you know, some controlled substance, that's a mismatch that counts in that 50%. If you're supposed to be on morphine, but you come back positive for hydrocodone, that's a mismatch. You're taking a different drug than you're supposed to be prescribed. So that's what we call a mismatch on the med match. And that's where that 50% number comes from. I love that. And I did that same study um, for people who died. I worked with a medical examiner and I looked at what drugs were in their system when they died, all the prescriptions that they were given for 12 months before they died and analyzed, you know, were they compliant or not? Right. Um, and I use the same definition that you did. Awesome. That's great. That is awesome. Um, any any trends that you can share with us as far as what are the current misuses that we should be concerned about? Yeah, you know, at Quest we're looking at a couple of things. This there's you know there's two things from a from a you know public health perspective that I think we're really going to focus on in the next decade. One is the forever chemicals, right? Now we're talking about all of us being exposed to plastics and poisons and things in the general environment that we don't know are bad for us. We're just starting now to investigate these things and see, is there some panel of tests that we could develop at Quest to tell you in the public, hey, you've been exposed to some of these things. Maybe you shouldn't be drinking out of your old plastic containers that have been in the microwave 2034 or the dishwasher, something like that. So that's too early to talk about, but that's where I see the future going. And the other thing is the class of drugs that we just hinted at before called NPS or novel psychoactive substances right? Drugs that we don't test for now that may may not it may have just been invented in some lab last year. The synthetic cannabinoids, the xylazines. Of course, synthetic cannabinoids, synthetic stimulants, synthetic opioids, synthetic benzodiazepines. Think about the potential for hundreds or thousands, and it's a moving target. So how do we develop- The a- ketamines, right? I would go buy whatever's sold on Amazon or readily available on the street. So <laughs> It's true. And-, and and look, I understand this brings in a whole nother philosophical viewpoint. The payers 
don't want to pay for us to test a hundred different things. Why would they want to, right? It's not in their best interest, but we need some support to be able to do a broader drug screen for the patients at risk. Look, if you're at risk for drug misuse and on the streets and we test you for three or four drugs, we're probably not going to find the ones that you're using. We need to be able to do broader panel testing. And right now there's a mismatch between what they're willing to pay for and what we actually need. Yeah. That's important, um, especially in keeping up with the, the trends, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and look, you know, other issues, there was just a JAMA report last week about pediatric exposure to opioids, like half of the pediatric deaths in this country are related to opioids. I mean, that is scary. Yeah. The, num the number one source that I've heard before is mom's pocketbook. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, the number so, one poisoning in um, in all pediatric hospitals throughout our nation is marijuana, and they get it. And the number one type of uh, marijuana is gummies, and the number one person that they get it from is mom. Um, and uh, babies also, the largest growing number of, of escalation of fentanyl deaths, babies under the age of one, tenfold increase, and children age one to 14, 14 fold increase, according to Families Against Fentanyl. Crazy. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot of fentanyl in kids to, to have an adverse uh, outcome. So that's, that's scary. Yeah, it is. Um, I want to say thank you so much to Dr. Kim Allen for your question. And I wish you a lot of success in your career in emergency medicine. Such a pleasure to work with you side by side in the hospital. You're going to be a fantastic physician. And thank you, Dr. Jeff Gooden, for um, your conversation today, your expertise, your advocacy um, on all issues related to drugs. I do think drug testing makes a difference. It's nice to have an, a concrete diagnosis and to use that data to convince people and motivate them to change and make healthier choices. This was great, Dr. Lev. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Mm -hmm.